0: for
1: the first time this and uh, receiving this message. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was, the early twenty first century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, have accessed entry 191.pr2321 certificate number 13321 cask 263
0: Yeah, that sounds kind of like a like a the the, uh, the title of like a like a song on a Def Leppard record. Yeah, I was cask trying to think
1: it's definitely a big step up from Vortex 1. Yeah. Cask 263 260, uh, could not couldn't uh, two it be more. one of those early 2000s bands? It could, right? Or I, or like a I early I love Cask 263. Early 70s sort of jazz rock record? <laughs> Did I say it right? Is it 263 or is it 263?
0: I would say Cask 263. Um who who died and made you Cask librarian? You know what? I they there we're going to get some uh, some responses to this episode because um although you and I neither of us are um we don't we don't drink alcohol we don't for various reasons you have never had alcohol is
1: that right yeah i'm sure it's i mean not not in a cake I'm, you know yeah i've had it, alcohol in food i'm sure yeah. i've sipped a drink only to discover then that it wasn't virgin and yeah, sent, that's sent it track. back
0: I uh, uh, on the other hand drank all of the alcohol of a lifetime of a normal human lifetime and mine and your lifetime but I just concentrated it into a into a much shorter period so I have had all of the of the booze it's just I've just compressed it into a into a period between the <laughs> ages of 15 and Twenty
1: six. Thank you for taking my. Uh, thank you for doing my drinking for me. Yeah, you're welcome. Like like the little kid that gets spanked for the for the crown prince or the dauphin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When people say, "Ken,
0: you know, like how how dare you not not uh, not lift your share?"
1: Oh, I was sewing my wild oats. I yeah. was just doing it as. John actual, actual oats you were actually <laughs> i was having steel cut oatmeal yeah sowing sowing wild oats did you um did you not know that latter-day saints actually do have they appoint a person to do all their drinking and partying for them like no. a like a shabboskoy. no 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 really no that is not true.
0: <laughs> you really had me going i you know every religion's got its own little thing i well, thought maybe you had yeah you got a couple of like italians we have to, to do our
1: patriotic you. duty for the for the beer and liquor all industries right. um Every drop we don't drink, somebody has to take care of. Well, the
0: beer and liquor industries are, as you know, billion-dollar industries. Both big. What do we call them? Big booze. Big booze. But um, but kind of unlike the beer industry, which is which has expanded in both breadth and depth. Uh, but it's you know it's it's harder to charge a pretty penny. For a beer, past a certain
1: point, right? Because it's a beer. It's not like what's the most you can get hipsters to pay for some? What's the most ex- hoppy, raspberryish <laughs> beer? It's got to be some sort of Belgian beer with, with notes of sumac and uh, and uh, Thai basil. Oh,
0: you 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 think you're being ridiculous? But we're going to get I'm- into that. I think I'm being ridiculous, but actually that's what Will Wheaton is drinking right now. <laughs> yeah, it's something that, it has, yeah, that smells it has like
1: sumac and Thai basil.
0: Sumac. Um, the world's most expensive beer apparently is Miller something— Miller No. Yes. Oh, no, Miller High Life, right. <laughs> It's Miller High Life, but from the 60s. <laughs> it's It tastes exactly like a skunk. Um, let's see here. Brew Dog, the end of history, which is a Belgian blonde ale that apparently is— Served inside of a dead squirrel. Mm, I don't know if I'd pay extra for that. (laughs) Um, Oh, I'm not kidding. The bottles are uh, inside taxidermied squirrels. It's a biodegradable festival of life. So it looks like a squirrel, but with a with a beer bottle coming out of its... It looks like you forced a beer bottle into a squirrel. It's really do grotesque. you take off that? Do you, is it a screw top or you take off the head? Or? No, no. It's a, you pop the you pop the. I mean the squirrel's head you're dr- with you're, you're, eyes and ears and everything. It's all there. Are
1: you drinking from the head or the tail? You're drinking from mean. the mouth of
0: the squirrel. I think that's correct. That seems yeah, like you don't want to drink out of its butt. No, that's good etiquette. Uh, th- those. Dead squirrel bottles. These are really terrible. If you like, trigger alert. If you are not into, if you're not into what this sounds like, you're really not going to be into what it looks like. I
1: have a kid who will not look at taxidermy, which means you can't go to any natural history museum dedicated before 1960. And we we just went to some restaurant on Capitol Hill the other night, and only to find out that the whole thing had a hunting lodge theme. Yeah, and we had to see my kid facing the corner to run out screaming. Well, those are 765 dollars.
0: Per bottle, as we'll see, the bottle sometimes makes a difference in the price. Wait, the Lost Abbey Cable Car Creek is nine
1: hundred dollars a bottle. Wait, uh, this is one of those. Lists. I don't like paying by the word. I don't. I don't need a beer with a six-word name. No, agreed. Or, so, there, especially if it has like a Doctor Who joke in it or, or whatever. However, they name IPAs today.
0: There are expensive beers, um, but in the. Uh,
1: in the range of a, a couple hundred bucks.
0: And even these are comical
1: outliers, like the burger on the menu that has Gold Leaf.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and actually, Gold Leaf will play into part of our story in a minute here, too. Um, there is a... Um, I guess the reason that Lost Abbey Cable Car Creek sells for close to a thousand bucks a bottle is that it's no longer made. Ah. And so there were only... A few places. That's the same reason I'll
1: pay $1,000 for a can of apple slice from 1989.
0: (laughs) It's no longer made. Can't get it anywhere. uh, A transformation happened fairly recently where um, certain of these luxury consumables, comestibles, uh, became investments uh, in addition to their. Uh, their status as just something for rich people to burn
1: money on. Usually, this creates problems when that happens, right? Yeah, because suddenly the people who actually would like to consume it for its normal purpose have to compete with the investor class, and in some cases, that just means you can't afford a apartment in Vancouver anymore. Yeah, well, and and so there are consume there are the people that want to
0: that want to use the thing, mm-hmm. right? And then there's a there are. But there's the speculators there's the investor class but then there are also there's also the collector class which wants to own it but isn't really buying it to for as a speculator or to get rich and they aren't necessarily buying it to use it they just want to have it this happened
1: in antique maps it used to be you'd actually have to be some kind of scholar or weirdo or both to be interested in bidding on old maps whenever they would appear. I feel like I'm both. And now, oh, absolutely. And, and, I'm, I'm and 100% I have, both. I have a collection of old maps. Do you have old maps? I have some old maps. Yeah. Um, I enjoy them more than I collect them. But now you're competing with literal multimillionaires who decided, you know, at some point people were like, this looks great over the couch. And then suddenly there was a mass, a mass audience to contend with. And then people were like, these are undervalued. This is the next big thing. And then the money poured in. Yeah. and you can't actually get one because you love it because you're competing with people who are like, this this uh, 17th century Portuguese map might double in value next year. Right. All those Vien- uh, Viennese
0: like rare booksellers started tearing apart their old atlases and uh, for the color plate
1: maps, people would actually steal them from libraries because right. you know there'd be super valuable maps in these kind of un unguarded books. So you just cough <laughs> and then drag an exacto knife along a book. Oh. Terrible. And oh. librarians wouldn't know for years what, right. what had gone wrong. Because right, nobody wanted to look at that old book. Yeah, how often do people look at the average book in a library? Oh, that's awful.
0: Uh, so anyway, we're going to get a lot of response uh, to this show because I know there are a lot of futurelings who are in the consuming class of spirits and beers
1: and cigars. Um, because and, and they'll drag themselves out of a pool of their own vomit. In their for their <laughs> depraved lifestyle <laughs> to send off an angry missive.
0: Well, it's a it, it, it's a style actually of bar now, the rare whiskey bar, yeah. and you see them in Seattle. You see them everywhere you go. Where the whole point of the bar is that they have five hundred rare rare whiskeys, uh, five hundred bourbons, and you can go and some of them, you know, the ones up literally on the top shelf are. Um, hundreds of dollars for a for a shot of, of this whiskey and it's a kind of it's
1: an it's a way of people it's a way people use to express connoisseurship because they want to be seen doing it right you could also you could also buy that at auction drink it at home with a jazz record playing right but you want to be seen as a person of status and taste I mean it's the it's the thing about being a connoisseur right it's a it's a
0: social it, experience for a lot of people i mean i'm sure there are people who have extremely expensive tastes who really sit at home and out of a brandy snifter uh identify all the all the uh, overtones of shoe leather or whatever in their thing
1: (laughs) but to hold at bay the actual kind of hollowness and meaninglessness of, of any of this kind of pursuit you have to have other people to distract you
0: And, and uh, so
1: there is, there,
0: there are so many people in this, uh, in this world. Let's just, let's just start there. There There's so many people in the world, Ken, over 6 billion. More than you think. And, and a surprising number of them, even though it's a very tiny fraction of the people in the world, a surprising, a surprisingly large number of them are, are filthy rich. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you have an image of. Like a uh, some the son of a Russian oligarch or a Chinese billionaire, a callow Chinese billionaire who can uh, the uh, who, they can drink a ten thousand dollar bottle of wine or and and it is a showy um and kind of vulgar expression of wealth because it's such a you know, such a fleeting experience. You drink a glass of wine and and um then it's, then it's gone forever. How, do, how long did it last, right? I mean, you're, you're probably not doing it
1: for the buzz. I often think about also the quality multiplier. Like, if that bottle of wine costs 200 times what a pretty nice bottle of wine costs, is it 200 times better? Right. Or is it 1.5 times better, you know? Uh, I have a hard time—I actually I have a hard time with luxury goods for that reason. Yeah. I'll be like, do I really want the seat on the plane that costs three times as much but is— actually just only slightly better because both seats are going to dallas
0: yeah in that case you seem to have decided you do want that better seat or at least (laughs) (laughs) i have a lot more upgrade miles right now than i used to you you sure like to send me photographs of yourself sitting in those big wide (laughs) seats but
1: yeah the um did you ever have a problem with that you're like why why does this thing cost 80 times and i guess that's part of the appeal for people it's better because it costs 80 times as much.
0: Well, you and I talk about this a lot, right? Because I will make some uh, mocking reference to your Mickey Mouse watch, and you'll get a little bit of a stern look on your face, and you'll go, it's actually a nice watch. It's,
1: because not, it's not
0: a nice a watch. Because it's a Seiko, right?
1: It's a Seiko or, yeah. the the 80s they don't make anymore. Right.
0: Um, I absolutely think that, I mean, I sometimes look at pictures of a beautiful Rolex watch, an old one and i love everything about it i love the connection to the 1960s and 70s i love the idea of a handmade swiss machine they're beautiful mm-hmm. they convey a kind of thing i mean a new you know a new rolex con- yeah conveys a, a different kind of thing but yeah taste and and uh, old school elegance but there is no part of me that needs to tell the time a, full stop, <laughs> I do not need to know the time, almost under any condition, except on Wednesdays when we record the show and you're like...
1: Uh, I'm already at your house. Yeah, where are you? And I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> is it that time already? I forgot my laptop. But like,
0: you know, the cheapest Rolex you could find is probably $7,000, which is more than I've ever paid for anything. So I can't... I You know, I keep, I keep hoping that I'm going to inherit someone's Rolex, but I've looked at all the men and women in my family. And although there are a couple of cousins that own Rolexes, I'm not in the line of succession to receive them, right? Like every cousin would have to die. 13 people would have to do some King
1: Ralph style lightning strike and and you get a Rolex. (laughs) All of
0: a sudden, you know, I get a lady's Rolex and I would, I would wear the shit out of it. But, um, so yeah, I mean, I love, I love some notions of it. Um, that, that in particular, the, the watch, thing but i'll I'll almost never i don't know how rich i would have to be to to believe that a ten thousand dollar watch was i guess it's a form of men's jewelry it's the it's one of the few things that a man can adorn himself with and you know and a woman can have a fifty thousand dollar necklace or earrings i guess if you're living in or five hundred thousand dollar uh jewelry and this is the one thing a man can wear that says like i'm a flashy guy but I don't. Uh, that's not me, right?
1: I'll never. I would buy. I have would, you ever put anything in a hotel safe? No.
0: Yeah. No. What? I, don't. I look they're, at them.
1: They're fun to play with. You can set the combination. Beep, beep 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 beep.
0: Um, yeah, maybe I should put my phone in there, and then. And then you just you uh, like, have to watch yeah. TBS. Yeah, yeah, watch Sex in the City, which is what you do in <laughs> hotel rooms. But the the um, like. Cognacs and um, and wine, I mean, these things have for many, many years been part of the luxury uh, asset world. They've been, you know, we all know about expensive bottles of wine that, that mm-hmm. sell at auction, old bo- bottles of cognac that are in some cases, you know, 100, 200 years old, even, um, that are, that, w- on somebody's bar or on at somebody's dinner table would be a way of not just communicating that you're rich, but that you have exquisite taste. That you are a you're a member of this you know illustrious class.
1: It makes your party an event, right? We're right. G- we're gonna taste the 1908. That's right. I'm just making this up for movies. Or you could have a, or you could like lure a friend downstairs and then brick them into the wall behind your wine cellar. That's 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 another thing you could try. That's a wonderful when, thing. When you're sending out your invitations. <laughs> You'll have a pit and a pendulum and an Amontiallo. You can't do it more than once. Like, I feel like the cops would figure out pretty quick. These people keep disappearing uh, after they check out this guy's wine cellar. I be- You know, that wine cellar, if I recall correctly, is pretty big. I mean, big enough that you could wall off a whole section of it just to... Imp- just to, like, murder a dude. What if you walk into somebody's wine cellar and key- there's all these little <laughs> cutouts on the wall, like little phone booth-style things sticking out? Uh, hey, okay. go in here. It's right in there. Ladies, that's a red flag. It seems a little bit Game of Thronesy. Yeah. 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 Um,
0: but that's where you're going to end up being when the White Walkers come.
1: Just put them all adjacent to each other so that all the little the you know, people buried alive, the skeletons buried alive are kind of all on the same wall. Right. So you know the room will start to shrink slowly, uh-huh. but uh, you know not noticeably. Yeah,
0: I mean it's not to like the a, eyes of the Venetian police force. It's not a John Wayne Gacy situation where you end up not being able to walk on the floor. No. Uh, it it we're going to get a lot of letters, I think, because this is a um, because this is a realm where people have in, in any connoisseur situation part of the appeal is there's a lot of information. Mm. There's a lot to digest expertise, both literally and and figuratively. Yeah. Expertise. There's a lot of, um, there, there's a whole, it's, it's things you can write magazine articles about. It's a, it's a world where the barrier to entry is actually pretty low because you can go to Trader Joe's and buy a bottle of five buck Chuck, or you can get a $20 bottle of wine, or you can get a $40 bottle of wine. And if you're, if you are interested in it but can't uh, can't afford a four thousand dollar bottle of wine, you can still take an interest in wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take an interest. There's something
1: for every wallet and budget.
0: That's right. And if you want to have uh, if you want to be in the nice watch game, you don't have to get a Patek Philippe. You can. There are lots of entry level nice watches, right? Um, and so, booze and and specifically whiskey has become a big, big place. Uh, in the in the luxury comestible market but also in the investment market and the and the collector market um and it's happened
1: as actually surprisingly recently
0: really
1: um, yeah like whiskey is because you think of it as a very old school thing. Somebody enjoying a very expensive bottle of wine, it de- but, but well, not but not for investment purposes. Well, made. so
0: wine again being a slightly different thing, like a wine cellar, a, a well-appointed cellar full of great vintages, um, has been a sign of of uh, wealth and class for a long time. Um, and you usually, you know, and, and every, I don't want to I don't want to like uh, embarrass myself by trying to describe the wine market, because boy, that feels like a, that feels like 10 episodes
1: of Omnibus. And, and we'd actually have to do some research, which we just did.
0: <laughs> but you know, my uncle, uh, my uncle Cal had a, um, a vineyard in Oregon. Huh. Um, and he had a, a, a vintage of wine called Knutson A-Rath, and, um, and so all through my childhood, my uncle's winery and their, their wine, Canutes and Arath was something that was on the dinner table in our family everywhere. And we would go down to Oregon to the winery and, and, uh, he would have tastings and he, and he had in his home, a a giant cellar that had wines from around the world. And he'd spent a lot of time in France learning the trade, his, uh, he then got into champagne, and his um, his brand of champagne was Argyle from Oregon, which became a very successful sparkling wine. It's not from the
1: Champagne region of it's Oregon. Not, it's
0: not a champagne, but it, it's from it's from uh, yeah, it's from whatever the hills there in Dundee. Yeah, uh, and Argyle you can still buy, but now my cousins have gone and taken back the old vineyard. And was it was it abandoned and overgrown? No, or? no, no. What what happened was they stopped making Knutzen Arath and they started selling the grapes. So they'd uh, owned it the whole time, but uh, they've been selling the grapes to other. And so they've taken it all back. They took the house back from from Arath himself just recently, and they've started Knutson Vineyards, which is their new brand.
1: I didn't know you had such a Scandinavian wing of your family,
0: Knutson's.
1: And the Easy. Knut
0: and so if you're listening and can find Knutson wine, by all means, uh, those are that's those are my first cousins. I don't I don't drink, so I don't benefit from it. And obviously, they're my first cousins, so they don't no, give me any money. And you
1: have no idea if it's good or not.
0: Uh, I don't. Although it's although I know it's good. It's I mean, they, well regarded. Yeah, and these are these are old. Um, these are old grapes
1: now. They, I mean, Uncle Cal started that. Is that good if they're old the grapes? I, I usually call those raisins.
0: No, they cut them down and put, plant new ones. But I mean, it's, an, it's a well-established vineyard, I guess. So I grew up around wine, and I remember going into my uncle's uh, wine cellar and marveling at the old dusty bottles and these kind of exotic-looking French, you know, chateau. Le, the Mouton Rothschild and all this stuff, where where it, it 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 evoked all the the kind of feelings of like old Europe and unknowable uh, distinctions in taste and color and. All the people sitting at the table swishing their wine around in the glasses. Almost
1: aristocracy.
0: Yeah, it just felt like, uh, it felt like to me as a kid, oh, this is what adulthood looks like. Yeah. This is what sophisticated people do. You know, one day I'll graduate into this. When I was a kid,
1: I thought A1 was very fancy because the label kind of looked like a wine label.
0: Yeah, exactly. Put a little A1 steak sauce on there. No, you don't actually put some
1: ste- <laughs> Heinz 57. Uh, we were at dinner the other night with some friends who knew the sommelier at this place. And so he was bringing over wine and we were just kind of politely nodding. Around. Or whatever, and he brought over one that had kind of a the like the label kind of looked like an like not like an NFT, but it looked kind of like kind of like fun Etsy art. <laughs> yeah, it was like it had been like kind of potato stamp art. And I was like, wait, is this the thing now? Does do wine labels not look like like a one sauce? And he was like, mm, no, I think they kind of do. Like this one's cool, but so this is the new thing I'm going to get into is actually wine labels that like look cool.
0: I went to I was at a grocery store the other day and I saw a wine a. Uh, a whole collection of wine for sale there that had Snoop Dogg's face on it. <laughs> and it was not cheap wine. It was, you know, more than twenty bucks a bottle.
1: And it was like Snoop Dogg wine. I went to this extremely cursed grocery store that we love near our house. And they had breakfast there with like Lil Yachty's face on it. Did you huh. know did you know you can now get Lil Yachty's Reese's Puffs? No. Like it's actually Lil Yachty's apostrophe S. Reese's Puffs as if as if he has been part of the um the creative process right. it's of, like a of, of producing sig- a these Reese's signature Puffs. Yeah, puffs? I, I don't know what he, I don't think he's changed the Puffs in any way. Um, well, maybe he has. I don't want to claim that he hasn't.
0: I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know who
1: Lil Yachty is. I've done a lot of things in my career, but this is the one I'm most proud of. I'm actually finally looking this up. Mm-hmm. Oh, he he has a song called Reese's Puffs oh, rap. Oh, there you go. So he's on the, he he's on the record puffs. as being a. But I don't know if they're, I don't think they're different in any way. Like he's not, it's more like just seeing Mary Lou Retton on a Wheaties box. Like none of the, none of the stories report that he's changed up the recipe. But it didn't
0: say Mary Lou Retton's Retton's Wheaties, but then she didn't do a a Wheaties routine at the Olympics.
1: No, um, that follows your success. But I guess nowadays you just need to shout out the brand and they'll put you on the label. So yeah, I hope you can find in the wreckage of society some loyalties, Reese's post. They look delicious. Uh,
0: the The crazy hipster label we'll see also plays into our story mm. in a second. the The um the origins of Scottish whiskey uh go back to the what the fifteenth century really um. What we call Scotch. Scotch is a type of whiskey, and it has to come from Scotland. It comes from Scotland, and um, and we think of the the uh, most Scottish whiskies, or, or at least over fifty percent of them, come from the north of Scotland, from an area on the coast. They're called Speyside, and that's where Speyside. Yeah, S P E Y S I D E. Now I'm going to be saying a lot of Scottish names, Gaelic names. I'm not going to be pronouncing them correctly. Heads up, um, heads up, everyone. Uh, as a Welsh person, I feel like this is an act of patriotism for that's you. That's right. To say it That's wrong. right. And yeah. I would. And if if, if if I were saying Welsh names, I would also be mispronouncing them. But um, it was a you know like every kind of spirit. They're easily moonshined. You know, people were making uh, whiskey in the north of Scotland because it was a it was a. Place that they were growing a lot of the legal reach was limited. Up yeah, there. and they were growing a lot of grains there. It was it was uh, reputedly the water uh, in that part of Scotland has a very low mineral content, dissolved mineral
1: content, so that. I'm always skeptical when people say something special just because of the water. Yeah. it just seems like they can't actually explain why their bagels are are not, as, or you know, why your bagels are not as good. So they just appeal to water.
0: So you don't believe that the artesian water of the artesian uh, of, <laughs> of, of the Olympia beer made it a special beer.
1: An artesian would have to come out of the woods and explain this to me <laughs> for me to believe this. <laughs> I have not seen the artesian's. Uh,
0: what What happened was up in Scotland. There was a lot of. Um, there was a lot of bootlegging and there, and you know, liquor has always been a thing that was taxed by, by governments, you know, uh, through the centuries. And so they got a captive audience. Yeah. It was a, it was a thing where there were, you know, there were stills popping up right and left and the, and the crown was coming and cracking down. Um, and this kind of all culminated in, uh, in 1823, uh, the crown passed an, an excise act in 1823 that basically allowed uh, distillers to legally make whiskey up in Scotland and uh, and pay an excise tax, but not a, not a criminal one uh, enough that it could become a profitable enterprise. As you can imagine, the um, the title of the oldest distillery in Scotland is also a thing. Both. Uh, Disputed and prized, um, the the claim by a distillery called Little Mill, kind of seems to have been the one that that um, has taken the that crown of thorns. Actually, the or oldest crown of thistles uh, from the from the 1770s, but older uh, than America. Older than Possibly. America, uh, and originally these uh, these whiskeys were what's called. Um, Malt whiskeys, which were made in a single sort of pot still, uh, you know your your basic unsophisticated still that had to be cleaned out every time. You make a you make a mash of barley, you soak it for a while, and then you and it starts to um, it starts to ferment, and then you stop the fermenting by boiling it over a peat fire and you know, and through the – I mean, you've seen a still in
1: operation. Yeah. Um, and these were – And is that good? Does that make it good if it's – what's better, single malt, double malt? Well, this is this is kind
0: of key to our story. Uh, those, those original single malts then were – you know, they were each very kind of – each time you brewed a still, you would get a very sort of different – Flavor, depending on what went in and just what what happened in the course of the the uh, distilling, right. distilling rather, um, and so as these whiskey distilleries tried to produce a standardized their yeah, like a, a like a product that was consistent from bottle to bottle, um, they started blending different batches and and you you would end up having a a, a like an employee a, like a professional person who would taste the different mixes and blend a consistent a consistent tasting whiskey
1: out of uh, out of a selection
0: of these single malts.
1: So is that why a connoisseur is more of a single malt guy cuz you can get more variety or well we'll get like, there. Or more difficulty? Okay. We'll get there.
0: It was um and and a lot of it has to do with you know, once the once the booze is distilled, then it's put into a cask and the cask itself imparts a lot of flavor to the
1: Yes, um, the wood to itself, the right? That's what all the Kentucky bourbon people say.
0: Right. And a lot of the casks were originally used to uh like they're when they were new, they were they were used for sherry and then you take an old sherry cask and use it for whiskey, so so some of the flavor of the whiskey comes from what had been in the cask before. Um, and there's and you know cask making is a whole, it's the cooper's art. I mean it it it's a it's an ancient trade. It's just, just a barrel. It's
1: just, just a barrel. What's just about, making the barrel. Let's not giving too much. Bread.
0: But you know you scorch the inside of the wood, and that scorching oh, that right? also imparts flavor to it. It's the oak barrels typically. And so you know this was a cottage industry, uh, this Scottish whiskey. But in the 1850s, a couple of things happened. There was a there was a a new a new still was invented. What's called the continuous still that didn't need to be cleaned out every time. You could make um, you could make more booze. You could make it faster. Are they using it still? Uh, they are still using the still, and so there was a there was a, a way now of uh, producing kind of a like a a cleaner, faster booze, and the the rules changed, and you could now mix other, you could mix mix different kinds of liquor, different grains together into blended whiskeys and call it a Scottish whiskey. And so you got these, these, it became, it, it became much more popular and fashionable in the English culture of the 1850s to have a blended whiskey. It was a more, it was a higher proof. It was a more reliable tasting product. And, uh, and a couple of things happened right around this time. There was um the, the gladstone spirit act of 1860 kind of uh legalized the manufacture of um of a blended spirit where you were you were you know you were kind of creating a liquor out of out of bits and parts and in some ways just kind of putting raw booze or raw, you know like just grain alcohol into these other kind of it, is this kind of a lower grade product then or we not, think not of it, necessarily we think of it that or we think of it that way now but at the time no it was a, it was an it was a higher grade mm. it was an industrial product scotland was very fashionable in the victorian era because queen victoria had such right. a scottish fascination and connections and and, uh, and that, Balmoral, and that guy she was into—that guy, that one dude. So Scotland was like all the rage. Everybody was wearing tartans, and um, and coincidentally, there was a at the time the fancy liquor. If you were a fancy lad, was brandy, but there was a, a like a a devastating agricultural plague over in Europe that... Yeah,
1: this would have been imported brandy, probably. Yeah. Yeah, This is
0: largely French cognac. Ruined all the brandy. And so, there was this homegrown alternative, which was blended Scotch whiskey. And that um, that continued to be the mainstream whiskey from Scotland for then all of the 19th and
1: really most of the twentieth century. Interesting. So it's in our lifetimes that yeah, the so fashion changed. All like
0: just before I was born, um the distillers at Glen Fittich, one of the the main sort of space uh
1: scotch makers. Which all have Glen in the name for some a reason. A lot of them do because they're all they come down from the glens. The Glen, they're, they're growing wheat in the Glen? They're the, malting wheat in the Glen? That's what's happening, That's yeah. not where I would grow wheat, but okay. Where would you grow wheat? In a wheat field. On the Fen? Yeah. <laughs> I'd be in the Glens and the Fens, yeah. up, up in the Tours or the Coombs. Ken, you're a busy guy. I've got so many irons on the fire right now, John. Uh, and
0: it's uh, it's tough to nail you down, but you're always, you always look good. You always look slick. You know, you never show up here with leaves in your hair or sticks in your beard, um, you're always, you're do you always, want me to tell you my secret? You're clean. You're well appointed. Well, your secret is that you're, you're married to an incredible woman who makes sure that you
1: don't leave the house looking like a pile of laundry. And that I'm not a Robinson Crusoe style castaway. That's, That's true. that really helps. To, That's to true. keep The sticks and leaves out of my beard. Although you do talk to a beach ball. I've noticed. Sometimes. Um, one thing that has really helped me yeah. is Mac Weldon and it's, daily wear system
0: mac weldon has helped me too a lot but the daily wear system is new can you explain it
1: Uh, it's just a it's a selection of smart design clothes that they've made in performance fabrics they've built to work together Uh so you buy some mac weldon items and you can pair anything for a great look any day of the week
0: so mac weldon has always positioned itself as a uh as a line of men's basics. And this really comports with uh, the idea we have about men that they often don't know exactly how to dress.
1: And do not want to put any effort into
0: it. Yeah. And so this is a system, the daily wear system,
1: actually helps you. It, it, it's all figured out in advance. Yes. Yes. And I like that we can keep saying daily wear system as if it's some kind of new cult or belief system. Yeah, the daily wear system. You know, I... I, I, Or the DWS. Nothing has changed my life more than the daily wear system. The fabrics are really great. The tailoring's nice. I love everything of theirs I've ever worn. Yep,
0: yep. They've uh, They've got cool fabrics like silver knit um Ooh, they uh, they all are very like uh they, they're e- highly packable like they' their performance fabrics. so they're not bulky but they do the job of a bulky
1: fabric S- kind of like me <laughs> you do the job that's what I've always said about you yeah. you do the job of a bulky fabric I do so get some buy some time add some time back to your week with the simplicity of the Mac Weldon Daily wear system. How do we order, John? For 20% off, that's
0: 20% off. That's $20 out of every 100 off. Visit MackWeldon.com slash Omnibus and enter promo code, wait for it, Omnibus.
1: That's MackWeldon.com slash Omnibus, promo code Omnibus, for 20% off your first order.
0: Radically efficient
1: wardrobing.
0: Well, Glenn Fittich... They they had the foresight to in 1963, someone at Glen Fittish said, Oh, but because here's what was happening. They were throughout this whole period, they were making single malt scotches. They were they were uh they continued to use this pot distilled whiskey as a com- as a component of these blended whiskeys. So they were making single malt scotches, barreling them and then letting the barrels sit in a warehouse and then it's an ingredient and it's an ingredient and it's an ingredient that has a lot of flavor but it's an unpredictable kind of art form and so this the these uh these distilleries were full of in some cases you know decades old single malt scotches that were being uh that were often sold to other distilleries you know it was a it was a it was just like like having a a kind of molasses or something. Sure. Um and it was Glenfiddich in 1963 that first reintroduced the idea of a single malt scotch that we're actually going to bottle a, in a bottle. And even that was it, it's still called a single malt if you are um bottling a a, a blend of Single malt whiskeys from the same distillery.
1: Oh, really? So it's
0: not a, necessarily... a blended whiskey is
1: going to have different different yeah. distilleries mixed in.
0: Blended whiskey is going to have booze from from different places, different kinds. It's going to have uh, different grains used. But if you take two two barrels of single malt from different years, even uh, you can combine them, and it's still considered a single malt whiskey. Asterisk. Um, Ken, there's also a term for if you combine two barrels uh, into a single malt. Um, those of, are of the same distillery. Of the same distillery. Those are called double wood uh, because it's two different barrels, and you can have you can have triple wood. Triple wood,
1: Ken. I've never had triple wood. No. Maybe if I tasted one of these. Maybe if you tasted one of these. So, so that means it's just it's coming from three different casks. Three different casks. Uh but in the in the early nineteen eighties, this was
0: still a very uh like a very small and and a small world of of connoisseurs, and it wasn't it wasn't like a like a a super big money thing. It was just you know, there's always gonna be some weirdos that are into some weird exclusive thing. But in nineteen eighty. In 1986, uh, at the McClellan distillery in in Scotland, and McClellan was a well known supplier of of barrels of single malt, but they weren't themselves. The McClellan was not a uh, prized or well known brand. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was one of, of, uh, dozens of people make or dozens of small family run companies that were making this kind of stuff barrels of whiskey that then they sold on uh, to, to it's other a distillers.
1: manufacturer they're not there's right. not any particular prestige in their brand
0: but uh, but a small group, a couple of the sons or a couple of the the scions of the of the family and um, and a few kind of like marketers, in 1986, were uh, they were walking through, you know, new bu- new business partners, kind of walking through um, the warehouse, and they realized, oh, we've got some casks here that have been sitting around for a long time, and a guy uh, by the name of Willie Phillips was working with the the Shack family, and he and his and his pals kind of said, what would happen if we just just Took this booze that's in this cask and just put it in bottles. You know, single malt was was enough of a thing that this would have been a. It, it wasn't like a like a lightning strike, but it was
1: kind of a. Um, yeah, it wouldn't be the first thing you'd think to do with an old barrel.
0: Yeah, it was. It was a way of it. it a little bit of a little bit. It was just kind of a like a, a marketing like a like. Taking the temperature of the mid-80s and realizing, oh, you know what? I bet you we could sell this to yuppies. To yuppies. Thinking
1: outside the cask. And they they found some 25-year-old barrels. Is is that a good age? Like, is the older the better when it comes to single malt?
0: No, and it's not true of any of these... Uh, right.
1: Eventually, stuff will turn into something not so
0: great. Sometimes it's a it's a it's an organic process, right? Mm. So sometimes an old bottle of wine, you open it and it's terrible. It's
1: gone, got it's vinegary. Or yeah,
0: something. it's gone south. And then it, sometimes it's it's great. Uh, and then the same is true with casks of whiskey. And it was during this walk around that they discovered some barrels, uh, or I'm sorry, they discovered a barrel, a single barrel of um, of booze that was 60 years old. And when I say booze, it's because whatever. I don't
1: care about this stuff. So they f- if I found a 60-year-old barrel of booze, I would just immediately brick up Willie Phillips into the wall. That's right. And then I would just keep it all for myself. <laughs> and he'd is be this, in there Is this revealing too much about me? The McClellan! Montresor! Let me out! Uh,
0: and so they were like... Can this still be good? It's like doubtful. And they they popped it open and they they tasted it, and to their
1: surprise and delight, it was still drinkable. Um, they still, they weren't like, "Holy cow, this is great." They were just like, "We could sell this."
0: Yeah, it was delicious, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't think anybody felt like it was the it's greatest not, whiskey. It's, it's that not a ever game changer, tasted. but it right. was good. It was it was still very good,
1: and it. Was, I do this in my fridge all the time. Yeah. I'm like, well, who bought the sour cream and when? Let's you, see. You saw me <laughs>
0: You saw me do it a couple hours ago when I smelled the, the, the half and the, half. The half and half. I was
1: like, no, I don't think this one's still good. Yeah, I feel like I have a Willie Phillips experience like this every day. I'm a real, I'm a real connoisseur. Well, what they decided they were gonna do is
0: bottle this uh this six at the time sixty-year-old single malt whiskey that was in cask number two sixty-three. Mm. And out of the cask, they managed to get 40 bottles of this uh, of this malt. And uh, they thought it was hilarious. They thought it was great. One of the people involved knew the pop artist Peter Blake, <laughs> <laughs> okay. who famously- I thought the, you were going to mention some Scottish Laird, but no. No. Peter Blake. P- Peter Blake, who famously did the Sgt. Pepper album cover. Yeah. And they said, this is a this is a good idea. Why don't we have Peter Blake design the label for twelve of these bottles? And so Peter Blake designed a like a cool hipster
1: whiskey label. Not twelve designs for for one each. No. He, he, but twelve of them had the special Peter Blake.
0: Had the Peter Blake design. And what he did was he he took uh some pop culture references from nineteen twenty-six, which is uh. when the cask was originally bottled. Uh, Including. And the last uh, time
1: pop culture was good.
0: Yeah. Valentino is on his label. Um, Benito Mussolini. Yeah, exactly. uh, On there. (laughs) All these icons. Um, (laughs) Weirdly, the golfer Bobby
1: Jones. Sure. Appears on the label. Yeah, golfers were big celebrities. And isn't he Scottish? Am I wrong? He's Scottish? So there you go. And so. This uh, would be a very funny version of Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club (laughs) Band if one of the Beatles were told. (laughs) And you need to pick your favorite celebs from the mid 20s. And he's like, "Um, (laughs) or if it had only been golfers, Big Bill Tilden and uh Robert Benchley, I guess. Well, so
0: Blake does 12 bottles and they uh they sell them as a you know as kind of like a cool, groovy new concept. And they're for how much? Well, it's funny because the story, uh This, the, the, um, the mists of time have kind of confused the question of the first time these bottles were sold. Hmm. Um, so the, the, they just sat on the gift shop for a while. (laughs) Yeah. Like the, the guy that was really spearheading this was a guy by the name of Hugh Mitcalf and Hugh was the one that was like, you know, this is like a, this is a dynamite like marketing scheme. McClellan is still selling almost all of their stuff to the, to the marketplace. To Glengarry Gary and Glenn Ross. And they make these, that's right. Glenn Grant. Um, they make these bottles with Peter Blake on them and no one involved in the story can quite recall exactly what happened to them at first. They were all sort of sold, but they weren't, you know, they, they, there
1: wasn't. It, there wasn't like a splashy auction or anything.
0: No, and there wasn't really even a market for
1: single malt whiskeys in this way in 1986. It's funny if they just turned up in stores like a winning lottery ticket, and some guy just happened to buy one. It kind of was like that, although there were only 12
0: bottles, and so of, of, of the Peter Blake of ones. the Peter
1: Blake uh, ones. So these are these are noticeably more collectible than the the 28 non-Peter Blake ones. You said there were 40 bottles total.
0: Well. So the other ones, you know, they sold these 12, but the other ones they still kind of held in reserve. And in 1993, their Italian distributor said, Hey, you know, I could get an Italian artist to design some labels. And he got Italian artist Valerio Adami to design kind of a, uh, like a, like a line drawing label, like not, not, not a collage, but like a, like, almost a Miro drawing and they did 12 Adami bottles. And then there were two bottles sold with blank labels with under, with the idea that like, Hey, you can, you know, we're doing these art bottles. You can do your own art bottle for, you know, for two of them. And then the remainder of the bottles were sold under a program that the McClellan Developed called their fine and rare collection.
1: I thought you were gonna say uh, they were sold to elementary schools. They, under, yeah,
0: no, they under were our community outreach program. <laughs> they were sold to local winos. Uh, and the novelty of it was just that these were six at the time sixty, then sixty five year old bottles of of single malt whiskey. It was kind of an unprecedented thing. Now it's not unprecedented in cognac, right? Uh, the just recently. A bottle of cognac
1: that was 258 years old mm. sold. And um, it's a risk, right? You assume it's maybe you assume it's good because other bottles of that same vintage have held up.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, at this, this bottle of cognac just, just last year sold for $144,000. Um, and it's, uh, that's more than I would have spent. Yeah, right. It's, um, but it's kind of a, uh, you know, it's a famous. I mean, this is
1: 1762. This cognac, like, how does it? Even, I always wonder how these have gone undrunk, unless they're from like pirate shipwrecks or something. Right. It's a. It's astonishing. It was just found on a shelf somewhere. Somebody
0: has it. I mean, and probably it will remain undrunk. Probably two hundred years from now, it will still be sitting on a shelf because somebody paid one hundred and forty-four thousand dollars
1: for it. Oh, so people buy it? Yeah, I guess that's true. If you buy it as an investment means, or even just as a sign of prestige, right? You're not going to crack it open with your buddies.
0: Well, in nineteen ninety one, and one of the reasons that Valerio Adami was invited to, to Uh, to dress up those 12 bottles was in 1991, a bottle with the Peter Blake label sold for 6,375 pounds. Suddenly there's a secondary market. Yeah. In a Glasgow um, like whiskey auction. And so the, the recognition that like, wait a minute, this 60 year old bottle of whiskey is actually, it's made cool by the, by the limited edition of the label. But in 1996, an Adami bottle sold for twelve thousand pounds, and it. This was sort of the beginning of the the um, the kind of global fascination with single malt whiskies. So I quit drinking in 1994, and in 1994, in a ma- and as protest, as a protest
1: to this yeah. single malt whiskey, to this thing, terrible new trend
0: at the time. Uh, when I quit drinking in 1994, I had never heard of a single malt whiskey. And so I never, tr- I never tried one. I-, I probably wouldn't have been able to afford one, but it never, that was a thing that came later. And I remember, you know, whenever somebody quits drinking, they're always going to be five or six times in their life when they're like, oh man, you know, it's my I daughter's wedding. my chance to. Yeah. And one of the things I remember in the late nineties as single malt whiskeys be- were, were what everybody was talking about Thinking, well, I'll
1: never have one. I quit drinking too soon. (laughs) That's the main problem. I guess I would have assumed that people who drink enough to consider quitting, um, maybe this is unfair, but maybe they are they not the kind of connoisseurs who would be like, well, I would like to try a... A, a more expensive version of that. I mean, is that that's not why you're drinking if you're a, if you have a problem. No, and that's exactly right. There but, w- but does it add a le- even at even at a level of alcoholism there is a level of boy this this is good stuff.
0: Well, a lot of alcoholics justify their alcoholism beca- by by saying they're connoisseurs. Yeah. I mean, it depends. If you're if you're a rich alcoholic, 100% you figure out a way to make it about how you really care about the wine and whiskey um when you're a poor alcoholic it's kind of hard to say like no ten high whiskey it's really my
1: brand uh i just would have assumed you know if you you know if you need the hit you you'd actually t- and that's the thing i mean what what
0: what happened to me and this is i think really common is that alcoholics are always looking for a reason and so, if it's like, oh, what I never did was try the fancy. It's just your brain. It would be a terrible reason to fall number. off the
1: wagon, yeah, because of just to try some s- dumb things, some marketing guy and an Italian pop artist.
0: But the by the late nineties, I mean, the late nineties was the first time that I became aware, uh, as a pop culture consumer, that this was something. Now that was magazine articles were being written about single malt whiskeys. Um, but the thing is that these. You know these whiskeys; they all sold, and a few of them, a few of these bottles, got drunk uh, at somebody's party. Shouldn't they be? Well,
1: before I, I'm in favor of that. Oh, I see. They just got drunk by people who didn't know what they had.
0: Well, they knew what they had, but they were fancy pantses who could afford to drink a five thousand dollar bottle of whiskey.
1: You have yet to make the case that the the, the liquor is any better. Uh, well, do, I, do critics agree that it's uh, some special cask? What's strange is that. Very few people
0: have ever consumed it. Um, the guys <laughs> I that, the guys that were there, I mean you know it was submitted so Alan and Peter uh, Alan and Peter Shyack, who were the, the the scions of the of the McClellan family, uh, Frank Newlands, Willie Phillips, Hugh Mitcalf were all there that day when they discovered these this barrel and said like, hey, what would happen? Had they had submitted it to the McClellan's nosing panel mm-hmm. who decided, yes, this is a sellable thing. But after that, the only people that have ever had it are the very, very few unknown rich weirdos who actually drank these bottles before they were worth what they – ultimately came to be worth.
1: And nowadays there's no douchey son of an oligarch crashing into a railing in his uh Well in his Bugatti and
0: there there are those, but the value of the bottles has become so much greater as a uh like a collectible a thing to sit on the shelf yes. and be evidence of your superiority than even to be so like gross, so vulgar as to drink it. Mm. One uh, critic who had tasted it described it thusly. He said it was not the best uh, scotch he'd ever had.
1: They they should not put that on the label. He
0: named some scotch from 1997 that he said was way better. But he said it had uh, notes of prunes and dates. Yeah. So it's like Dr. Pepper. Some clover, ginger, and cinnamon. And I was like, this smells like a potpourri candle to me so far. <laughs> yeah, but he said, candle, it, the, the it also had subtle uh, elements of orange marmalade or marmalade. Why not? Uh, peat smoke, oak tannins, linseed oil, leather. I, I mean, at That's this point, that, I'm, he's just naming stuff. I'm stunned that his palate is so sophisticated. Ripe pears. Sweet caramel. This is
1: definitely a case where the more things you name, the better your palate looks. So you're incentivized. Yeah. To, to. He also tasted
0: apple, honey, and vanilla. So it's all there. I mean, what other flavors are there? What that sounds
1: di- pretty good. Some of those are things I would eat. I'm not going to go have some leather and linseed oil for lunch, but apples and vanilla. Okay.
0: He didn't say soy sauce or wasabi, but almost every other flavor <laughs> is in that list. Um, s- but because of the limited number, the four, the forty. Bottles, And because of the connection to the kind of Peter Blake and the hip art, uh, and because, because there was this precedence of a bottle selling in 1996 for 12,000 pounds, when the next bottles came on the market.
1: Oh, right. They still got a
0: reserve. It wasn't for, it wasn't for a couple of decades and apparently in 2011, the, the, the earthquake in Japan, apparently there was a, a, a pair, one Blake and one Adami, in someone's collection that fell off a shelf and broke. Oh. So that was the last anybody heard about these bottles until 2018. I would go look it up if
1: it, you know. I mean, I guess it's soaking into the carpet.
0: Well, and it's one of those things where if you're a collector— I'm sure you submit a claim to your insurance company, but it's pretty hard to value, given that only a handful of these bottles have ever sold.
1: This is not a but I heard recently that uh, do you have any memory of when Wheel of Fortune used to give out prizes? You'd solve the puzzle, and you'd have to pick out furniture items from a from a carousel of, uh, of yeah. decor, yeah, 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 until your money was gone. Yeah. So the uh, often people would end up buying the lowest cost item because they'd, you know, Chuck or Pat would make you keep buying until you did not have enough money, and then you would get a service merchandise gift certificate. And so people ended up with the lowest cost item in the showcase, which was often the ceramic Dalmatian. And after the Northridge quake, you know, that LA quake in the, when was that, late 90s? When was the Northridge quake? Yeah. Uh, yeah nineteen. Suddenly, Wheel of Fortune started getting calls from past contestants whose ceramic Dalmatian had not survived the quake. Uh-oh. And they were, you know, they, they, were, they got dozens of calls. Hey, I need to get a new Dalmatian, and I can't find who... And of course, nobody had made them in years and years and years. Right, and uh, and all the Dalmatians are now gone. Although I did once see one in a closet uh, of, really? of the Jeopardy of the Wheel of Fortune soundstage. Do
0: you feel like they're worth a lot of money now? I wonder if there's an aftermarket for. Uh,
1: Almost certainly, there, there's no temptation to drink it. <laughs> Almost certainly, there is. Let, let me ask you this: What? Well, maybe this is not something I want to get into too deeply with a recovering alcoholic. But yeah, is the experience of drinking like my my experience with um with a hard liquor like that is that the? it's like an overwhelming taste. You know, it's an overwhelming sensory experience, not akin to actually any kind of other thing you would put in your mouth. Right. So are you able to extract pleasurable, is it smooth enough that you can extract pleasurable notes of apple and vanilla or whatever, yeah. or is it?
0: I, it's, I mean, you also don't drink coffee, but coffee has undergone the same transformation, right? In the 1980s, most of the people I knew were still, uh, drinking Folgers Maxwell coffee, House, yeah. and it was only in the '90s that we saw in the United States this explosion of of interest in coffee as a connoisseur item. And you know, I,
1: but even though it's fire water in your
0: mouth, it has. Tri- I mean, there's a lot of difference in different boozes. Uh, there's a there's a lot of difference in the buzz that you get from hmm. gin or bourbon or wine, you know, your whole experience, the whole experience of the journey of drinking, uh, you the, the, the experience of drinking four glasses of wine and four shots of whiskey are like universes apart.
1: There's also the cultural difference, right? Where, um, particularly now single malt whiskey has a real kind of masculinity Absolutely. to it. Um, you know, it's a it's a punchline that you know Nick Offerman's character is going to love that stuff because that's what a mandry is. There anything about the quality of the drink itself that lends itself to that?
0: Well, or? it's hard to drink. I mean, if you gave a <laughs> sip of whiskey to a child, the child would would glare at you with hateful
1: eyes. I am the child in this story. <laughs> to me, this is at odds with the uh, with the nosing guy saying. Uh, Oh, delightful, Uh, uh, notes of maple or whatever. And and the same is
0: true with with coffee or wasabi. I mean, all of these things are adult tastes. I don't think there's anyone in the world, the first time they have wasabi, who thinks this is spectacular. I can't wait to put this on all of my raw fish, right? I mean, if you went to my daughter and said, you know, there's one thing that makes raw fish better, and that is this, Tiny ground up root that will that bol- shoots daggers <laughs> up your nose. Yeah, that makes your nose uncontrollably run. Um, so this is it's part of the experience. I think of as you as you've lived life longer and more fully,
1: you're really trying to torture your body. <laughs> right. Uh, I've done all the normal stuff to my body and I'm still alive. Yeah. It's the human the human death urge means. Stronger hot sauce, please.
0: Yeah, I'd like to do yoga in a hundred and ten degree room. I'd like to go to a spa where they hit me with reeds. Like it's um,
1: nobody's massaging me hard enough.
0: All of these things are part of the, but but I do believe absolutely. Just like the the people who work in perfumeries, who can detect tiny uh, little amounts of flavor. I mean, I mean, even uh, Napoleon Dynamite can taste when there's bleach in the milk. Like it's um it's it's absolutely an aspect. And whether or not that connoisseurship at what point, as you say, is it worth two hundred times more, at what point also does does being able to divine these micro differences is it really anything more than a sport Il- of the senses illusion um or or even if it's actual, what its value is right is it's just very it's very to, personal to the end consumer. So, fast forward to recent days, a bottle comes on, or I'm sorry, a pair of bottles, one of each, the Blake and the Adami, and and clearly they are collected by by wealthy people who kind of have a have large collections. Uh, they, a pair of them come for sale in 2018 at uh, Sotheby's, uh, with an you know an estimate of two hundred thousand dollars or something for the two bottles. Given you know, how the market has exploded. In 19, in the mid 80s, uh, there were something like 30 single malts available in the world. Um, Now? Now there are hundreds and hundreds of them, too many to count. New ones come on the market every year. Um,
1: So they're running out of locks and glens to name them after.
0: No more glens. They have to. They're making up fake locks at this point. Uh, These bottles end up, Selling for 1.2 million pounds, two bottles of this whiskey. The following year, a single bottle of it, uh, and I think it's a Blake bottle, sells for um, $1.9 million. Yeah, once it becomes an investment item, the money comes in. At one point, the artist Michael Dillon paints... One bottle along the way somewhere. And that sells at auction for $1.2 million. Um, the prices have become depressed slightly. Um, a a oh. bottle sold just this year in 2021, but it only fetched $1.4 million. Oh, time to jump in. So this is this is when you want to get on it.
1: We're giving investment tips on the show now.
0: But this has become now... A global um, luxury marketplace, the single malt Scotch whiskey, and and a lot of this is being driven by uh, consumers in Asia. And there are a lot of Japanese whiskies that obviously aren't Scotch, but they are part of this. You know, I mean, you make it Suntory
1: times, um, but is there some extra extra cachet of coolness that comes with? their um their decades old Scottish heritage for for this new Chinese money um well yeah because the
0: because cask
1: 263
0: is kind of the the originator it's the rhyme animal and it's also the the um you know it's there's only 40 bottles or there were only 40 bottles it's unclear how many there are now does the and the there, there's nothing that are unsold right? Um, McClellan's not holding on to any. McClellan doesn't have any. No, they all they all were gradually. I mean, they, they sold some of them as part of this fine and rare collection. I mean, obviously, I think they wish they'd kept yeah, a couple
1: just like, sitting around. I wish, I'd, I wish I'd bought Bitcoin 10 years ago, too. But. but it's astonishing how much this has
0: become. I mean, whiskey represents just the tourist money of people coming to Scotland to— Go on the whiskey trail uh-huh. is like seventy million pounds a year in
1: industry. Wow! The see uh, they don't they don't need the they don't need England. No, they don't. They could be an independent let's, country. Let's go don't back, tell them that. Go though. back to the U. Go back to the EU and uh, live on the whiskey money.
0: Uh, whiskey exports are a four billion dollar industry for Scotland. Um, and now like. I think the most expensive Japanese whiskey is um, a whiskey by uh, Karuzawa. Karuizawa, I guess, is how it's pronounced. Uh, That's a $312,000 bottle of whiskey called The Dragon. Um, But there are also now collectors who have been collecting whiskey long enough that they've amassed enormous collections. Uh, the, The former son of the owners of Pepsi of Denver.
1: Pepsi of Denver? The
0: the bottling plant? The bottling plant for Pepsi-Cola in Denver. um, Died recently at the age of 67. His name was Robert Gooding. And he had 3,900 bottles of uh, single malt scotch in his collection. Uh,
1: I wonder if it's the kind of thing, you know, with a lot of collections, just the idea that you have it and you can go peruse it is a big part of the pleasure. Right. And I wonder for a guy like this, if he's not even like, you know, selecting the right one for a party, like, does he know he's never going to drink any of these or like, is part of it just, would that ruin the fun of having it if he'd actually drunk, if drank one? No. Well,
0: boy, I don't know. Can you drink a, I mean, at a, at a, at he, the point that you're drinking a $2 million bottle of scotch, every shot is worth tens of thousands of dollars. At what point is that just, it's like that hamburger with gold leaf, um, you know, at what point are yeah. you just...
1: Some people are going to love the ghostness of it. Yeah. Some people are going to be repelled by you're it. You're
0: just pissing on the poor, but that has its own appeal. Right. Um, so, by, by uh, to give you some sense of the, um, of uh, by comparison, the most expensive bottle of wine ever sold was uh, a bottle of Romani Conti, uh, it was a bottle sure, from but what year? From 1995. <laughs> oh, oh, really? And it was for 558 thousand dollars. So one quarter of the really price of the McLaren.
1: I would have assumed wine was the bigger and rarer market.
0: The older, the 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 1945 Chateau Mouton Rothschild, uh, which is a, like a super cool, like end of World War bottle. Sure, that's like the, the James Bond. Three hundred thousand dollars. In auction, what's the reason for the difference? The smaller
1: batches—is it all just rarity?
0: It's just—I mean, I, I think I think there are um, there are bottles of wine that are there's a bottle of wine called the Screaming Eagle from 1992 that sold for half a million dollars, and it doesn't have Screaming not, Eagle sounds like malt liquor. I know it sounds like it should have Snoop Dogg on it. It, does, it doesn't even have as many bottles as uh, the McClellan. No, it's just that it has become, uh, it has become a thing. Uh, but to give you another sense, in the cigar market, um, there so this is really cool. In 2012, some archaeologists found 800 Mayan cigars that were over 600 years old. Buried in like copper, buried in uh, in
1: pots the My- under the ground. The Mayans wrapped the Mayans- tobacco leaves into cigars, not too different from our modern ones.
0: If you look at these cigars, they are cigars. Wow, there's absolutely they're not. They look exactly like a cigar that you would buy in a box, and because they'd been buried in these ceramic pots underground, they were still good, and the cigars. And I don't know who these uh, I don't know who these archaeologists were that found these cigars, but they were sold to a, a collector named Gary Liotta or Leota um, for five hundred thousand dollars,
1: these these eight hundred cigars. And Total. it seems like he probably got a good deal. That does seem like a good deal. At some point they're not making any more Mayan cigars. At some point he's just gonna be selling those for tens of thousands each.
0: Yeah. But there is a cigar called the Gurkha Royal Cortesian. Cigar, which is um, which each cigar is dipped in Remy Martin Black Pearl Louis Trez. Uh, they dip the they dip the cigar in the cognac, and it sells the the cognac itself sells for
1: one hundred and sixty five thousand dollars a bottle. So this is like the having all the. You know, the little bit of caviar and the little bit of foie gras on your gold
0: leaf burger. Exactly. Then the tobacco is grown in the Himalayas. When they were growing the tobacco, they only water the tobacco with Fiji water. (laughs) Fiji? Fiji water. That's the best
1: water? Is that what the Arcadians told them?
0: Apparently, that's what they're using in the Himalayas. They wrap the cigar in gold leaf. The band is embellished with five carats of diamonds. And when the cigar rollers roll the cigar, they're blindfolded so that their senses are heightened to roll the perfect cigar using only their sense of smell and their, uh, and their fingers. And that cigar, the Gurkha Royal Cortesian, sells for $1
1: million a piece. Let me tell you a funny story along those lines. Flint, Michigan still doesn't have drinking water. And that concludes cask 263, entry 191.pr2321, certificate number 13321 in the omnibus. I can't, in hindsight, I can't believe we got out of that with no, um, this is why we can't tax the rates. <laughs>
0: well, they, you got it there.
1: This is why we can't tax their rates, John. They'll stop dipping their cigars in, in Remy, Remy, Martin. Remy Martin. Uh,. Look, our civilization is clearly doomed, as this uh, entry should have told you. Um, Digging through the rubble, you may find uh, evidence of social media. We were at Omnibus Project. I'm at Ken Jennings. My co-host here is at John Roderick. Check out his archive and or Patreon. Um, We could be emailed at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Contemporary listeners found each other at the Futurelings communities on Facebook and Reddit and Discord and whatnot. Um, do you think people are going to send us start sending us single malt scotch after they hear this?
0: Well, just be aware that we don't drink, so it would only be a, a collector thing, and, but I'm totally into collecting some weird thing.
1: I would start fires with it if somebody sent mm, me super valuable. Boom. Oh, we got... Um, We got a package here from. You can send us physical artifacts. It doesn't have to be um, cigars that have been through a civet's butt or whatever. um, You know, I've had that. The coffee.
0: I've had. I've had had the coffee through a civet's butt. I I got a. uh, Jonathan Colton bought me a fifteen dollar cup of coffee one time back when you could still get civet butt coffee for fifteen bucks. Those were the days. And let me tell you, it was incredible. Oh really? You could taste every well, could taste no, every penny. It, it wasn't the taste; it was the buzz. It was such a radical buzz. I was flying,
1: <laughs> very into it. This is from uh, Chris Martin, presumably not of of Coldplay fame. Um, he sent he sent Johnny. Apparently, he uh, he gave you a heads up that he was going to send you a pair of pants, and he did. What? Whoa! Hello. Did you not hear that Chris was going to send you a pair of pants? Well, I, you know, I, don't, know, I don't know how long ago Chris oh, would have sent it. It was a message on your Patreon.
0: Oh, I do remember these. These are U.S. Navy official uniform pants oh. because I have a U.S. Navy officer's tunic,
1: and these are the pants that go with it. That's great. I hope that they fit. <laughs> In all fairness, he, he wanted to make sure I didn't get left out, so he included a season brochure for his theater company, Stockton Civic Theater. Lucky you. It's looking like a great season. So let me just run down what Stockton Civic Theater has for us in the year ahead. Uh, we're too late for um, Something Rotten, the um, the Renaissance, the Shakespeare musical with the Carrie Kirkpatrick score. Um, by the time this airs, you can still catch the end of A Christmas Story at Stockton Civic Theater. Don't shoot your eye out. Then in the spring, game show, The Comedy You Play. Hmm. I don't know what I think about my field being bastardized by musical theater, but okay. Mm. Thornton mine,
0: Wilder, mine certainly
1: has. Thornton Wilder's The Skin of Our Teeth. That's kind of omnibus if you know the play. Oh, and that's, that's in April. And then in June and July, Gypsy. So let the Stockton Civic Theater entertain... I can't believe I'm giving him this promo after he sent me nothing and sent you a nice pair of dress white pants. Would you wear a set of Navy officers dress whites? No, but I'm also not going to go to Thornton Wilder in Stockton, California. So, it's the same. Thank you so much, Chris. Again, did I say the address? You can send stuff to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington 98155. The most important thing you could do to support the show would be to think to yourself, you know what? The guys are always mentioning their Patreon. Hmm. Uh, All I would have to do is just go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and I could enjoy some of the perks that come with my membership. Yeah. It's as good as smoking a cigar dipped in cognac. Better. It's better. It's it's better than drinking coffee that's been through a civet mm, rectum. Yeah, I guess. It's, yeah. it's better than Longer just some, some random single malt scotch that happens to have a, a pop art label. It's better than any of those things, and uh, it comes in all... It's, it's a product for all budgets.
0: Yeah, if you have $1 million to spend on a single cigar... Give Ken five hundred thousand, and give me five hundred thousand, and we'll give you two great shows a week plus an additional show every month.
1: If you had the means, is there some insanely expensive item you would buy? Like a just the equivalent of a cigar dipped in brandy? Would it be? Would you buy Amazing Spider-Man number one? Or?
0: No, I mean, I, I obviously there are guitars that mm. cost a lot of money. And some of them I would love to play, but I wouldn't want to own one. What a responsibility to own. I mean, some of that stuff. It would just make you nervous. Yeah. It feels like uh, it would be nice if there were enough 59 Les Pauls that it wasn't a thing that no one could, no one that wasn't super rich could even touch. Um like Mike McCready has one, but he got one when you could buy them for a hundred thousand dollars instead of seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> uh but no, what what would I mean what would you I mean, maybe if I had a bag of diamonds That's that what I could you want. that I could wear around my neck, but I think that diamonds are fake rare. You want Tanzanite. Yeah. That's the diamond of tomorrow. I do. I want tanzanite. It's not too late. I
1: don't know. What what would you, is anything you would want? I don't know. Maybe art, but it's the same thing. You just get art. worried if you have something too nice. Yeah. Like, hey, that's an actual Matisse sketch, but like should it really be on your in your suburban house?
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe shouldn't it be where everybody can see it? I don't know. Uh, there there there's a painting that used to hang. Well, I'll tell that story another time. there
1: there is one painting what a cliffhanger (laughs) it'll come up better keep listening maybe you listened out of order uh, distant future and you already know what painting John is talking about
0: I don't future links from our vantage point in your distant past we have no idea how long our civilization survived we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come but if the worst comes soon this recording like all our recordings may have been our final word but if providence allows we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.